All right, well, we are making our way through, slowly through uh, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. We'll finish it up this morning. Um, I really hope that we'll pick up the pace just, just a little bit, just a little bit as we start moving into chapter 3. Uh, the title of the study is Help from Heaven. We've been discussing the incarnation, that is, the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, coming to this earth and taking on humanity, taking on flesh and blood. So that's the focus that we've been looking at. This is put in distinction to angels um, that the recipients of this letter seem to have had um, difficulty receiving that Jesus as a, as a man. And why would he come as a man? I mean, under the old covenant, it was the angels that delivered this, these wonderful heavenly beings. And that is true. Uh, nothing wanting to take away from them. But Jesus is superior in every way. And so even in his humanity, being made a little lower than the angels for a little while, um, and taking on this human flesh, that is superior. And so he's writing to talk about this. Last week in verse 9, we talked about how his humanity enabled him to experience death so we wouldn't have to. He took on flesh and blood. That'll be emphasized again. His uh, humanity enabled him to be our perfect captain, trailblazer in suffering, showing us how we too should suffer. In verses 11 through 13, we saw that we've been made um, one with him. That is, he's taken on human flesh. Um, he calls us his brethren. So there's this amazing, uh, wonderful unity that we share with the Lord because of the incarnation. This morning, as we move on through these uh, just verses 14 through 18, we're going to see that his incarnation gives us victory over death. It provides aid from heaven. It makes him a high priest to atone for our sins. And it helps us in our temptation. So those are the points, uh, the, the main points we're going to make. And we'll begin right there reading in verse 14. It says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, the same being the flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We'll stop right there. So the first point is that the Son of God has taken on humanity. It's a point that's been repeated over and over again. I want to kind of hit it quickly because we have addressed this. But this incarnation is what Paul was referring to when he wrote to the Philippians and said that Jesus came in the likeness of man. I guess what I'm trying to emphasize here, this idea that Jesus took on human flesh is all over the New Testament. It's not just here in the book of Hebrews. It's a well-known passage, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. It says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. How did he do that? Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He became a servant as he took on human flesh. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. It's an inescapable, inescapable, easy for me to say, conclusion that the incarnation was so Jesus could have a body, so that body could be nailed to the tree, so that we could have our sins paid for, atoned for, that the wrath of God could be satisfied. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. So Jesus, uh, born in Bethlehem, born to the Virgin Mary, uh, comes in human flesh, but the Christ, the, the, the Son of God, did not come into existence at, in that moment of time. The humanity aspect of Jesus certainly um, took place at that time, and he took on humanity, but he has always been. Christ is eternally preexistent. And a couple of verses that emphasize this, John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to move on down to verse 14. It says, in the beginning was the word, and Jesus is the word that we're talking about here. So in the beginning was Jesus. You could read it like that if you like. But Jesus, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. Moving down to verse 14, and the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So while we look at the incarnation and we see that Jesus came and took on human flesh, don't think for a second that that was the beginning of the second person of the Godhead. He is eternal, and he has always been so not, I realize from many of you, this is a truth that you, you know, but in case it's a forgotten truth or maybe it's something you've never heard before, that when we talk about Jesus being born in uh, Bethlehem and baby Jesus was born and then grows up in Nazareth, that happened and humanity came, but that was not the beginning of the second person of the Godhead. That is the second person of the Godhead, the eternal God, taking on human flesh and becoming uh, the son of God um, in like manner to us. And the incarnation is a non-negotiable of the faith. So when does uh, Jesus come back for the, the church? Some will say at the end of the tribulation, some will say in the middle of the tribulation, some will say at the beginning. We can have difference of opinions on that. We may have difference of opinions on many secondary doctrinal points. But the incarnation is not a negotiable. <laughs> this is one that is absolutely necessary for salvation. First John 4, 1 through 3 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now and is now already in the world. So you can see that the idea, the teaching of the incarnation, Jesus coming into this world, it is not something you can take or leave. If you don't believe it, you are not in Christ. You are not speaking the truth. Now, as John wrote this, and 
certainly the words we're reading here in Hebrews 2 would have helped to confront an early church heresy known as docetism. Docetism believed that Christ only seemed to appear in human flesh. Um, He didn't actually possess human flesh. And so it was a phantom. It was an appearance that he had flesh. But because they believed all flesh was evil, there is no way they argued that Jesus could take on flesh. Um, But they got to argue against scripture. And it is so clear that he took on human flesh. And they, they went on to especially emphasize there is no way that the Christ could have suffered on the cross. And so what we see is a phantom. We see a spirit appearing to, but that couldn't have happened in reality. Now today, the religion that holds this idea and, and, and kind of pushes it forward is Islam. Islam has this belief that Jesus um, did not suffer on the cross. Um, a quote found in the Muslim world by Dudley Woodbury says, we honor Jesus more than you Christians do. We refuse to believe that God would permit him to suffer death on the cross. So while this is a very well settled issue, probably in most of our minds, understand that in the history of the church, this has been a point of great debate. And even to this present hour, one of the largest religions in the world completely denies that Jesus came and suffered in, the, in, his, his, uh, in human flesh on the cross for us. So it is something we need to be familiar with. But I just want you to, to have this, or as we talk about the incarnation, is to remember that he was ter- eternally preexistent and that the incarnation is non-negotiable. He died on the cross for us. If Jesus did not suffer and die on the cross, we are lost. Our sins are not atoned for. And so it is absolutely necessary. Well, then the second half of verse 14, he says that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. So the incarnation gives us victory over death. How ironic it is that Jesus um, destroyed the power of death by dying. And, and it's in uh, this shared likeness with Jesus that we have faith in him that we're able to enter into what he has received. He became as us that we might become as him. He took on human flesh and suffered and died that we might in faith receive eternal life. And so what a privilege is. We die in him, we rise in him, we are glorified in him, and we will inherit in him. We're going to see a a picture of this tonight as we see these 15 brothers and sisters go into the baptism waters. They're going to identify with his death as they go under the water as he died and went into the grave. And as they come up, it'll be identifying with his resurrection. And so he became as us that we might be as him, victorious over death, free from sin. The apostle Paul beautifully writes of this victory. 
I have this passage up there, I think, for you. But I would encourage you, if you don't know this passage, 1 Corinthians 15, you really need to turn there and you need to see it. You need to be able to get to it on your own. But let me read to you. Listen to the beauty of this victory we have, victory over death. But let me tell you a wonderful secret God has revealed to us. Not all of us will die but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blinking of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. For when the trumpet sounds, the Christians who have died will be raised with transformed bodies. And and then we who are living will be transformed so that we um, will never die. For our perishable earthly bodies must be transformed into heavenly bodies that will never die. When this happens, when our perishable earthly bodies have been transformed into heavenly bodies that will never die, then at last the scriptures will come true. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For the sin, for sin is the sting that results in death. And the law gives sin its power. How we thank God who gives us victory over sin and death through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we read in Hebrews there and then 1 Corinthians. You can can thank the Lord for it. It's so, it magnifies, it gives us a commentary on what the writer uh, is saying at the end of verse 14 when it says that there's victory over death. He's destroyed that. He died, Jesus died, a substitutionary death. Well, who's he substituting for? You can raise your hand right now. He died for us. He is our substitute. He stepped into that place and he died on the cross so we won't have to. Well, why is there death? As we read, because of sin. Sin brings about death. Jesus said to Adam and Eve in the garden, do not eat of the fruit of the tree because in the day that you eat of of that fruit, you will surely, what's the word? You will die. God did not intend for it to be that way, but sin introduced death. And this is the thing that chases us down. And as we read here, actually produces fear. But death has been defeated. Romans 6, 5 through 9. It says, for if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also should be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And so here it is. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. If it does not have dominion over him, it does not have dominion over the believer. So we have freedom because Jesus came and took on a human body and that body was put to death. But what we read in verse 15 is that, and we've been released and released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. It's interesting that he says, and release those who through fear of death, because without question, people still die today. Believers still die. 
We still see that happening. But the effects and the power of death have been nullified. Death of the physical body still takes place, but life in the spirit is, we're we're victorious. And so what is it that we're left to deal with? The fear of death. And there is a fear that we have. Um, I'm sure you have seen this, especially if you're older. You can find somebody who is a right-on believer, follower of Jesus Christ, has the hope of heaven, has lived for Jesus their entire life, and yet when they begin to stare death in the face can become fearful. And that's something that I find, I find interesting. But you see, the closer you get to it and the, and, and the more it stares you in the face, the more opportunity it is to have fear. So let me just say this to you faithful saints that maybe are staring death in the face. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. Oh, I mean, we don't want to go. Right? We say as Paul, we know what's waiting for us. We can't long to be in the presence of the Lord, but we don't long to die. We just long to be further clothed. We long to be in in that, that full state. So listen, brother or sister, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and if your body is failing you, or you have loved ones whose body is failing you, you will deal with all of those things, but here's what I want to encourage you in. Jesus came and took on a body. He died and he rose from the dead. He defeated death and therefore don't be held by the bondage of fear anymore. And listen, nobody wants to go, nobody wants to cheer on death and say, yes, here we go. No, we we got that. But if you're facing it, you can have full confidence of victory and you don't have to be held by that. Allow the truth of what we're talking about to wash over you hour by hour. You know, for those of us that maybe are healthy and we're strong and we really have no you know, uh, doctor report of death, or we're not seeing those around us that are about to face death, you know, well, why do they fear? Well, listen, you'll find out one day if the Lord tarries. And what you're going to have to do is what I'm encouraging those brothers and sisters that are facing it, that, 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 that possibility right now is wash yourself in this hope over and over again. Set your mind on Jesus. Meditate on him and what he did because as he is, so you are. He became as you so you could be as him. He is victorious over death. He is in a glorified body. And so, if the Lord tarries, and so far he has, we will face death. But it has no victory over us. Well, who is the one behind all of this? Well, we read there in verse 14 that the one who has this power of death is the devil. Diablos is the Greek word. And and it means the slanderer, the accuser. He is that one who viciously opposes God and his children. And he has devised a, a plan to thwart the work of God in creating man, and that was to lead man into sin. I, I believe that as Satan, Lucifer, learned of the plan of salvation that God had, or the plan that God had in creating man, and the place of honor, creating him in his what? In his image. Something that caused 
you know, the Lucifer to become jealous. And, and then he fell. And as he fell, he began to lead others in rebellion, trying to thwart the plan that God had in creating man and to try and bring death. And he was successful as man sinned. Death came in. He is the power. He is the, well, I'll put it, he is the, the you know, the genius, the terrible genius behind sin and death. But he has been defeated. Colossians 2, 13 and 15 I'm not going to read it all, but verse 15 says, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Public spectacle, think of that scene you maybe have seen in a, a, a Roman uh, you know, general conquering a city, bringing out the, the leader, the governor, the king, whatever, throwing him on the ground in front of everybody and placing his foot on his neck. That's triumphing over him. That's making a public spectacle. That's what Jesus did to Satan. And his day of judgment is coming. Revelation 20.10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. His day is coming. His day is coming. But at this present hour, he is still free to deceive. He is still free to lead people astray and to blind their eyes from the beauty of Jesus Christ, but his day is going to come to an end. But this is what all that Jesus did when he died on the cross. What, what a part of that would you want to give up? And that's what people do when they say, we don't believe Jesus actually came in human flesh. Is the incarnation a, a necessary Christian doctrine? Oh, I think so. It's necessary because that's where death was defeated. That's where Satan is defeated. That is where we are given the hope of eternal life. Moving into verse 16, we read, for indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. You have aid from heaven. You have help from heaven. You have assistance from heaven. Now don't think of Jesus as your assistant, okay? That would be a wrong conclusion, but that heaven has come to assist you and me. And all that would put their faith and trust in him is a scriptural certainty. And so continuing to show the greater position of Christ, he says, listen, angels don't get the help, don't get help. It's we that get help. It's, it's the seed of Abraham. Now, why does he say seed of Abraham? A phrase that is so connected with the nation of Israel. Well, because he's writing to people that are Jews that put, the, put their faith and trust in Jesus. And I believe that's as far as it goes. I don't think he's trying to, in any way, it would be a completely wrong um, conclusion that somehow Israel is, um, has an access to salvation that we don't have and hasn't been made available to us all. Um, we know that Jesus came and he died for the whole world. And to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile world and, and the gospels come to us. But read here of the connection we have with Abraham as Gentiles. Galatians 3, 26 through 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are, in, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So while you may not be a physical descendant seed of Abraham, you are a spiritual descendant of Abraham because of your faith. And so um, I don't think there should be any trouble in reading here the seed of Abraham. He's writing to those that are Jews. Ponder the reality of this verse for a moment. If you were in need and somebody was to come and help you, and let's say it is a person that is the greatest expert that, you know, in you know, and assisting, you know, we're not far away from Christmas. Some of you will be putting together Christmas toys and everybody needs an expert when it comes time to put together Christmas toys. And let's say you just kind of, you, you're trying to figure it out and you can't get this together and the, the engineer shows up at your house. You're like, you won't believe what happened. I was trying to put this toy together and I just said, can I get some assistance? And the next thing I know, the engineer from the company showed up on Christmas Eve at 11 o'clock at night to get this thing together so my kid wouldn't be disappointed in the morning. We'd all be like, you're kidding me. They came and did that? Okay, that would be, that would be a, a story to tell. But that's nothing in comparison to the fact that your creator, the engineer of human life, came and took on human flesh so that you could relate to him and he could relate to you. Because if he didn't come in that way, it wouldn't be possible. And he has come to assist you, to aid you in salvation, bringing you to life. Not to be your little genie in the bottle to get whatever little thing you want or to fulfill all of your material needs. It's sad that Jesus has been reduced to that because that is not what he came for. He came to give you wealth that is so much greater than a Cadillac or a big house or lots of money in your bank account. He came to give you the wealth of heaven. Joy and peace, a body like his, victory over death. You have aid from heaven. I want to exhort you right now. And I want to exhort, and, I want, and I've been prayerful and mindful about this, but I'm going to do this because some of you may be in a really difficult season right now. And you feel like the Lord has abandoned you. And you maybe even feel like, I don't know where he is. I th I, I, you maybe even are mad at God today. But I want you to see this. Is that the Lord does not give aid to angels. He gives aid to you. If you are not experiencing the aid of the Lord, why is that? Why is that? Well, maybe you have yet to come to faith in Jesus Christ and you need to accept the, the emergency, you know, roadside aid that he wants to deliver first and that's just to save your life, your soul. But as a believer, why is it that you would say, I'm not experiencing the aid of the Lord? A couple of thoughts. Maybe the aid that you're receiving from the Lord is not the aid that you want. But you know what? You're not God. You're not Messiah, and you don't get to direct the Lord in which way he helps and aids you. So maybe you have received the aid, but you've been unwilling to recognize the aid that has come to you. Maybe that's a possibility. I think 
you know, if you've been a believer for any amount of time, I think all of us can acknowledge I've done that one before. I've been unhappy with the way in which he showed up. I was looking for something else, but this, he brought me this. So, so maybe that's part of it. Um, maybe you're under the chastening of the Lord. You're in sin. And the Lord is chastening you. He's not judging you. He was judged. If you're a believer, he's not judging you. He was judged. He's correcting you. And so he's allowing you to go through the things that you are going through that it might humble you and bring you to repentance. And so you're experiencing the chastening of the Lord and you will not see the aid of the Lord until you surrender to the Lordship of the Lord. Can he do that? Well, let me ask you, do you ever spank, have you ever spanked your kids? Have you ever corrected your kids? I hope you say yes. Then the Lord can you because he loves you. And this is what we find in scripture. Maybe you're not asking the Lord. You have not because you ask not. Well, he knows. Yeah, he knows. Just like parents know when their kids need something, but don't hand it to them every time the thought passes and comes into their mind. They will wait till the conversation is had, the lessons might be learned, that there might be a connection in relationship with them. There are so many times where I, you know, the kids are, my kids are all grown now, but they would be coming and getting ready to ask. 9.99 times out of 10, I knew what they wanted, but I still made them ask. I was willing to give it. I was happy to give it. I was wanting to bless my kids, but I also wanted to have the interaction. So yeah, maybe you haven't called upon the Lord. I don't know. There may be other reasons, but let me tell you this. Jesus was sent from heaven to aid you, and he is still aiding you, and he is still helping you. The problem does not lie with Jesus this morning. It lies with your sin. It lies with your unwillingness to accept what he's delivered. It lies with your unwillingness to call. Maybe it's just a matter of timing. But I would challenge you, no matter how hard and how deep the pain of the suffering you're going through, is get your finger out of the face of God. Look what he's done. He took on a body to suffer for your sin, for your anger, for your rebellion, for your foul mouth, for your bitterness, for your lust, for your thievery. He died on the cross and was beaten because of you. Don't think that the Lord is not for you. He is totally for you. So while you're going through that suffering and hardship and I, I think there's a room full of people that would love to pray with you and encourage you. Let's begin here. Take your finger out of the face of God. And why don't you pray a prayer like this? Lord, I don't know how you're aiding me and assisting me right now or how you're going to, but I know that you will. Forgive me for accusing you falsely. In verse 17, we read, Therefore, in all things, he had to be, he, he had to be made like his brethren. Jesus had to be made like you, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of people. Jesus, because of the incarnation, is a high priest who atones for sin. We've already talked about it, but 
we are introduced to this idea that he's a high priest. What is a priest? He is a mediator. He's one that goes to God on behalf of man. And so Jesus is that faithful high priest. He is merciful. And this idea behind merciful, it's a word, uh, the, the idea of this word is compassionate or benevolent. But it's, it's this added thought I want to put there in your mind. When we read about Jesus being a, a, a merciful and faithful high priest, the idea of mercy is not only in action, but in thought. As I pondered that this morning, I was thinking, you know what? Probably very few of us would actually question the actions of God as being merciful. But the enemy seems to work a pretty good work in our mind in thinking that he does not have thoughts of mercy towards us. Oh yeah, he died on the cross, he is merciful. But his attitude towards me, his thoughts towards me are one of disgust and disdain. No. That is not, he may disapprove of your sin, but he is still merciful in his thoughts towards you. You know, you can show mercy to somebody in an act, but in your heart it's like, man, why do I have to keep doing this stuff for these people? Why do I have to keep doing this for her or for him? I am so tired. I mean, Lord, I know I need to show mercy, but I am so tired of doing this. So the act may be merciful, but in your thoughts and in your mind, there is not mercy. But this word for mercy, it, it, it doesn't just look on the act. It also looks on his thoughts towards you. Jesus is thinking thoughts of mercy towards you this morning. What a beautiful thing. And he is faithful. Is a writer saying that Jesus is trustworthy? Or is he saying that Jesus was fully faithful to the Lord? I think the answer is probably, yeah. It is, it is it's both of those looks. Um, he is trustworthy. You can put your faith in him. He's a faithful one to trust in. But he also was fully faithful to the Lord in accomplishing salvation. This is our high priest. And so... His humanity, we read here, as becoming a high priest, enabled him to appease laws, the laws that we broke. It's just demand for sin. He came and he paid that. He atoned for our sins, for our propitiation. He took the wrath of God. In verse 18, and we'll wrap it up here, it says, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So we find this word aid again. Jesus was tempted. He suffered. He was the captain. Remember, he was a trailblazer of suffering. He hacked his way through the jungle and made a path, giving us an example of how to suffer. He suffered that we might have life, but he also laid down an example. For he suffered being tempted and he's able to aid those who are tempted. Jesus knew what it was like to have his flesh tempted. He never sinned, never sinned, but he, feel, he felt it. He knew what it was like to have those thoughts presented to him by Satan himself. I would argue that Jesus was more fully and powerfully tempted than any man has, or woman has ever experienced. It was Satan's best effort. And it was Satan himself who brought the temptation. Not one of his low-level demons sent on a mission to try and trip up Troy. 
It was Satan himself. And so Jesus knows what it's like to experience the full attack of hell to seduce, to sin. Now, he was without sin. But when you're going through it, he understands it. And he's ready to aid you. So call upon him. Ask him for that assistance. The last verse I want us to see is Jude 124. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Jesus was tempted and he was victorious and now he is able to get you to the other side as well. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you have faith that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead? Do you look at your life and want to follow the Lord? And when you see your points of failure, unlike Jesus, you fail and you yield to temptation, does it bother you? Does it trouble you? Then I've got good news for you. One day you will stand faultless before the presence of the glory of Almighty God. And you know what you're going to feel like? You're going to stand with exceeding joy. You're going to be there. You're not going to be in shame when you are in heaven. You have entered into the full victory that the Lord has provided. So when we talk about the incarnation, it's necessary. And it provides so much practical um, assistance and aid. It is God's help from heaven for you. And so it is worthy for us to ponder. Jesus is greater than the angels. And Jesus has come to assist. My question is, have you been assisted by the Lord? Have you received salvation so that your sins are forgiven? And one day you will be in the presence of the Lord. If not, you need to confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It's an offer of salvation. But this is assistance that you must ask for. You must call upon the name of the Lord. And if you don't call upon the name of the Lord, you can know all the doctrine I just went through. And you can know it even better. But if you don't call, you'll never have it. So if you're here today and you've been around church your entire life, but you've never called upon the Lord, you need to call upon him. And if you have called upon him, then you need to know that the Lord is still assisting you in the temptation and the trials and the difficulty and expect for him to show up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reality of, of this truth. It's, it's deep stuff, Lord, that we're talking about. But I pray you would give us a heart and a mind to receive it and to ponder it. That although we might use words like propitiation and incarnation, we understand help. We understand temptation and victory. We understand the fear of death. And Lord, you've brought us to the other side and we say thank you. If you're a believer here this morning and you need heaven's help, ask him in faith, no strings attached. Ask him for that area. Are you, are you in temptation? Ask him to help you, to see you through. Maybe you are that person who has your finger in the face of the Lord in your prayer, lower it. Acknowledge that Jesus is true and righteous and he is faithful. He's a faithful high priest. There is nothing in him that is unfaithful to you.
He's faithful. If you're not a believer, they encourage you to call out to this priest, that mediator, the one that goes between you and the Father, and ask him to apply that work that he's done on the cross to you, to be forgiven and to have the hope of heaven, and he will answer you.